Welcome to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. And it's Monday afternoon. That means we're cross-defensing. We are talking about the scriptures, the Lord's word, the theology, and looking for the comfort of the gospel and the wisdom of God's law. Uh, again, I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and uh, doer of other things. I've been goofing around, um, in fact, lately with some with some video work, and we came up with a video last week about the rapture. What, what does the Bible say about the rapture? Answering some common uh, misconceptions about the rapture. If you're interested in that kind of stuff or some of the other theology that we're um, that we're working on, you can find it at the website wolfmuller.co, W-O-L-F-M-U-E-L-L-E-R uh, dot C-O. But we have a, a special treat for you today. Uh, coming on uh, th- two-thirds of the show, Oh, in about 15 minutes or so, is going to be Pastor Warren Graff of uh, Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he always has something particularly curious to bring to the conversation. In fact, last last time he was on, he was talking about how the communists tried to change the week from seven days to five days and get rid of the Sabbath as an assault on the Lord's institution of Sabbath. This is fantastically interesting stuff. We'll see if he can match and or beat that topic when he comes on later. But in the meantime, I want to talk to you guys about how to be a Pharisee. This is steps, two steps you can take to be a Pharisee, or really two ways that Phariseeism manifests itself. Because, because when we turn to the New Testament, we see these guys, the Pharisees, as the as the enemy, the those who stand in opposition to Jesus. But why? Why was why were the Pharisees so dead set against Jesus? And why was Jesus so dead set against the Pharisees? Why, why did these two end up the enemies? It, it, it's not, at least if you were just walking around Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, you would not necessarily think that it would be this way. In fact, while, while we who are uh, readers of the New Testament, we who are Christians know that the Pharisees are the enemies, it wouldn't have been the case uh, when, it, when, when you were just walking around in the days of Jesus, the Pharisees would have been the heroes. Now, I, I think this is important for us to remember because we... On this side of the of the gospel, on this side of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, we are able to see with clear sight how the Pharisees were the enemies. But if you were living in the time of Jesus, the Pharisees would have been the ones that you would have looked up to. You would have hoped, I mean, think about it this way, you would have hoped that the Pharisees would have been the ones to ask your daughter to go to a homecoming dance. And the Pharisees were the guys that took the Bible seriously. The Pharisees were the guys who took their theology seriously. The, the Pharisees were the ones who were trying to live a life that would be pleasing to God. The, the Pharisees, in fact, had set a standard of righteousness that was so high that it was impressive to everyone else, so that Jesus can say something like this in the Sermon on the Mount. He can say, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you might... You, will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, just imagine just imagine you're there listening to that, and you're just your normal schmo, and, and, and you your whole life have been looking at how righteous and how holy the Pharisees are. Oh, my goodness, look at, how, look at how good these guys are. And then Jesus says you have to be more righteous than them? How, how, how is it even possible? But then imagine you're a Pharisee. Imagine you're a Pharisee listening to what Jesus says. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And you say, yeah, that's right. We are the most righteous. And then you say, hey, wait, hey, wait a minute. Jesus just said that we're not going into the kingdom either because your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, and Jesus is going to come and preach a righteousness that is beyond their righteousness. And that's the first hint that we have 
that Jesus is going to give to us, that this whole idea of the Pharisee righteousness is a game. Now, that, that's the game that we want to uncover here in the next few minutes. It's the game that we want to see uh, how it's being played and how the Pharisees are playing it. So we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna suggest to you that there's two ways to be a Pharisee. There's two parts to Phariseeism, and I'll just tell you what they are right now, and then we can talk about it. The first part is that you change the rules to your own advantage. You establish a righteousness by your own works and by your own efforts by by changing the rules to what it means to win, to what it means to do good works, and then secondly, you boast about it. You become proud. You triumph in your own self-righteousness. Now, the first one is perhaps the most important one, and the second one is the most dangerous. So first, you change the law. One of the errors I've found, and I used to think this way myself, and I, I think a lot of people think this way, that when we think about the Pharisees in the Bible, we think that they are the guys who have, um, who have added to God's law. You know, we, we think of it like this, like God's law says you got to do this much. You remember the Sabbath, just as an example, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. So God's law says, okay, you got to keep the Sabbath day holy. But what the Pharisees have done, it, this is how we think about it, the Pharisees have come along and says, now here's how you have to keep the Sabbath. Here's how many steps you can take. Here's how much you can lift. Here's how much you can carry. Here's what to do in this circumstance and that circumstance. So that the Pharisees have taken the bar that God has set, here and he they've raised it to here they've made it more difficult this is wrong this is not what the Pharisees have done they, they want you to think that's what they've done the, the Pharisees want you to think that they've they're the ones that have made God's law even more difficult to keep that everyone else is down here doing this sort of basic law keeping but we're up here doing this really fancy law keeping you know it's enough for the normal guy just not to end his neighbor's life you shall not murder but no we we have all these other things up here it's enough for the normal person to do these little ba good works but we've got a higher standard of good works that we've set up here and it's especially it has to do with the Sabbath day that the that the Pharisees love to do this. They would always sit there and make up laws and rules about the Sabbath. My my favorite is they had laws about where you could spit on the Sabbath day. You could spit on a rock, but you couldn't spit on the dirt because spitting on the dirt could possibly water a plant. They had rules about they had rules about everything on the Sabbath. How many days you could? They had rules about what to do if if you were walking around and it started to rain, what you could do because it could be considered carrying water. So they they uh, some of the rabbis said, well, you can walk in the rain, but you can't wring out your clothes because that would be carrying water from one place to another. They had laws about how much weight you could carry. You could carry half of a fig. The weight of uh, no, the weight of a dried fig you could carry. But then they had a they had a a, a big uh, question about how if could you take that weight of the dried fig and move it from one hand to another hand? They decided, by the way, that you could throw it in the air and catch it in your mouth. That would be fine. And then after a long conversation, the rabbis decided that you could throw it into the air and catch it with the same hand. That was fine. But if you threw it in the air and caught it with the other hand, that was actually bearing a burden, moving something from one place to another, and it was illegal. This is the Phariseeism. They're coming up with all these laws, and they're, and the reason why they're doing it is so that they can convince themselves and their neighbors and perhaps even God that they are good. That they that they've kept the law, 
that they've done what they should have done, that they are righteous, that they are holy, and they have established a righteousness of their own. They've changed the rules so that they can win at their own game and so that you can lose. Every summer, Andrew, my son, reminded me of this. Every summer, we uh, go down to uh, to camp, to, we do a catechism retreat. We take the middle schoolers and the high schoolers, and we go down in, into the woods at Lutheran Valley Retreat at the at the camp that's there, and we play a game called Catechism Commando. And the the special thing about this game, Catechism Commando, is that the game the rules of the game change every year, and I change the rules. I invented the game, and I change the rules to 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 my own advantage, so that I can beat the pastors and I can I can win the game. That's a perfect example. Of Phariseeism. You change the rules to your own benefit, and then you get to be the champion playing your own game. <laughs> so that so that the Pharisees had not had not made God's law more difficult. In fact, the Pharisees had made God's law easier to keep. God's law commands everything from us. God's law commands that we love our neighbor as ourselves, and we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, with everything that we've got. There's never a time that we can say, oh, yeah, I've done it. I've kept the law. I've loved my neighbor like I should have. I've, I've loved God as, as I should have. There's never a time when we can go to bed at night and we can check off the list and say, yeah, I've accomplished it. I've managed it. I've done it all because the law always is accusing us, as, always showing us our sin. It works like a mirror to show us that we are sinners. By the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was never intended by God to show us how righteous we are. Rather, it was intended by God to show us our great need for the Savior, to show us how to love one another, and to show us when we fail to love one another. That's, that's what God wants the law to do. But the Pharisees say, no, that's too far. That's too high. The, the, the commands are too severe. We want to make it easier. We want to make the law difficult but doable. We want to set the ha- standard so high that only we can keep it, and then we can go about triumphing in our own righteousness. But what they end up doing is is totally changing God's law, perverting God's law. They don't intensify God's law, but they actually make it to where you're breaking God's law. They they, they so set up the, their Sabbath laws that, that to keep the Sabbath law, you end up hating your brother. So here God's law says, hey, you should love your neighbor. But the, but the Pharisee says, no, no, if you love your neighbor in this way on the Sabbath, you're breaking the law, you're sinning. They make doing a good work a sin. And that's why they think they can trick Jesus and trap Jesus by breaking the Sabbath law. In fact, there's one place, this is in Luke chapter 14, where they have this set up. They invite Jesus to dinner on the Sabbath day, and they do it for the purpose of trying to trick him. They invite him to dinner, and then they put a man with dropsy, with this swelling disease, right there by the door. So that when Jesus walks in, he's going to see this man. And they know, the Pharisees know, that Jesus can't help himself. He's just, he's overflows with compassion and with mercy for people. He sees someone that's sick, and he heals them. He can't help it. He heals the person. Someone w- runs up to him and says, Lord, help. And he says, okay. Even, even when Jesus knows it's going to be trouble for him, when he's going to cause him all sorts of heartache and pain, and he's not going to be able to sleep at night, he's not going to be able to teach, he's not going to be able to go this way and that way. When people come up and they're sick, he can't, he, Jesus just can't help it. He heals them. And so it is with this man. They put it in front, and they know that Jesus is going to heal the man, so they think they can trap him. The rabbis had said that, that and this is the law for healing on the Sabbath, that you could, you could apply a bandage, for example, to someone on the Sabbath as long as you were doing it to, so that it wouldn't make the person 
worse. You could try to keep a wound from getting worse, but if you tried to make a wound get better, that was breaking the Sabbath. That was sitting on the Sabbath. Unbelievable, these guys. So Jesus sees the trap. He sees the Pharisees sitting around ready for dinner on the Sabbath. He sees this man who's sick. He, he sees them all looking at him. And so he looks at them and says, is it lawful for a man to heal on the Sabbath? He, he's, he's, he's blowing up the first rule of being a Pharisee. He's exploding their own definitions of righteousness. He's teaching them that you guys have not followed God's law. You are not following the laws of Moses. He heals the man, and then he looks at him, and he says, which one of you, if you have a son or even if you have an ox that falls in a well on the Sabbath, don't go and rescue it, don't you see? That you are not keeping the law. You're not making the law better, or, or you're not expounding the law. You're changing the law. You're distorting the law, and you're doing it all for the purpose of, of your own argument, of your own self-righteousness. That's really what it comes down to. Now, th now, the reason why this matters is because all of us are tempted to play this Pharisee game. We want to change the law to our own advantage. We want to change the rules so that we are winning. We want to define things in such a way that we are not condemned and made guilty by God's law, but that we are declared righteous and holy by God's law. We want to live our lives according to our own standards so that at the end of the day, we can feel good about ourselves and our neighbor can feel good about ourselves and we can even make the case that God should feel good about us. And this is Pharisee part number two. You see, part one is to change the rules so that you are keeping them, to change the law so that it declares you to be righteous and holy. It is to make the rules such that you are justified by yourself. And then the second part is to bask in your own glory. It is to be proud. It's to, it's to be confident that you've done it, that you're a good person, that, you, that you're pleasing in God's sight. <laughs> and Jesus is going to blow this thing up, too. In fact, in the same text, Luke chapter 14, Jesus is sitting there with the Pharisees. And, and it's amazing because Luke tells us that they were all watching Jesus to see what he would do. But Jesus was also watching them. And, and what did he see when he watched the Pharisees? He saw these guys coming into the room and jockeying for the best seats. That's Pharisee style. Hey, I'm going to sit up here by the, by the host of the feast. I, I deserve the best seat. I'm the most righteous. I'm the most holy. Jesus, Jesus will mock the Pharisees because they were these guys that made their, their tassels long and their phylacteries broad. The phylactery is the little leather box where you put your prayers and you wrap it around your forehead and your arm and these guys would go to the phylactery store and pick the biggest one so that everyone would say wow look at how holy that guy is look at what a huge big prayer box that guy has wrapped around his forehead and they would all be impressed the pharisees were the ones that would pray on the corner of the street so that people would walk by and say wow look at how good he prays he's so he's so holy and he's so righteous so that the so that the second part of the phariseeism is to bask in your own glory to be proud and so jesus tells them a parable he says when you go to a wedding feast don't take the good seat don't go sit up, sit up on the high seat don't go take the best place go sit in the corner sit at the lowest seat because look what's going to happen you're going to go sit in the high seat, and the, feast, the master of the feast is going to come along and say, Hey, that doesn't belong to you. There's someone better. Go down there lower. Sit at, the, sit at my feet or whatever. But Jesus says, If you go and you sit in the corner, then the master of the feast will come and say, Hey, come and, and sit up higher. Jesus concludes it by saying, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisees were about the business of exalting themselves. Jesus wants to exalt the lowly. This is why Jesus teaches us repentance. 
He teaches us to know that we should never think that we should have a seat at the table of God, that we are sinners, that we should be, that we should be cast far from his presence, that we should have a seat next to the devil, next to the condemned, next to the lost. We, we, don't, we, we don't deserve to sit in the heavenly places at all. We, we deserve to sit amongst the lowly, amongst the condemned, amongst the despised of the world, the scum of the earth. That's how Paul refers to us who know our sin. But then Jesus comes to us in our sin and he says, Hey, you, friend, you come sit up higher. You come, you come sit by me. But Jesus, look at my sin. I've forgiven it. Jesus, look, I'm, I'm dying. I've died for you. You're, you'll be raised on the last day. Jesus, look how, look how miserable I am. Look how, look how the law condemns me. Jesus says, but I do not condemn you. My sin, uh, I bore your sin so that I could forgive your sin. I've covered you with the blood of my righteous friend. He, Jesus says to you and me, friend, come sit up higher. I've prepared a place for you. <laughs> so that the opposite of Phariseeism is repentance to know our sin, and to know the mercy of Christ. The reason why it's important to know the two steps to being a Pharisee is so that we are not. But rather rejoicing in the gift of repentance, we rejoice that Jesus is the one who exalts us, not ourselves. Jesus exalts us. And he has us sit in heavenly places with him, even now and even more so on the last day. God be praised for that. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and you're listening to Cross Defense. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back and see what Pastor Graff has for us. Something curious, something interesting, we'll talk about it. And you can join us for that conversation as well. You can call 314-821-0850 or anywhere in the world, 800-730-2727. Join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. And stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Gary Duncan, the Executive Director of KFUO Radio. We still have some seats available for you to attend our Focus on Christ Planning for Our Future event on Saturday, October 6th. The deadline for registration is this Friday, September 28th. As a listener and supporter of KFUO, you're very important to us, and it would be a blessing for us to get your input and ideas as we plan for the future of KFUO. Again, this event is Saturday, October 6th at 10 a.m. Call me for additional information and to register. Call 314-996-1511, 314-996-1511, or email me at gduncan at kfuo.org. That's gduncan at kfuo.org. Remember to register by this Friday, September 28th, for this free, fun, and informative time together. Snacks and lunch and door prizes and a time to fellowship. Join us, share your opinion as we focus on Christ and plan for our future. Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. This is the day which the Lord has made. For the lonely and homebound, for the grieving and dying, and for all those who are afflicted in body, mind, and spirit, especially for Join us for a live broadcast of Chapel at the LCMS International Center weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. 
Support Lutheran Education and join us at Brew in the Lou Tasting Festival Saturday, October 13th from 1 in the afternoon to 5 in the evening at Francis Park featuring a sampling of St. Louis Best in Beer, Spirits, Coffee, and Good Eats. Festivities include live music, dancing, vendor sampling, and selling. For information, you can call 314-200-0797 or visit lesastl.org. That's lesastl.org. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, your host, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. And I have on the line, all right, Pastor Ward Graff of Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Pastor Graff, how are you? Just fine, Brian. Thank you. I, good, to, I, good to be on. I really love this, the surprise that you bring to the show, because, I, you know, the, everyone else who comes on has kind of a range and I should sort of guess what they're going to talk about. I mean, Flammy's always talking about Gerhardt, you know, that kind of stuff. But you... This is an utter. It's always an utter surprise. What do you What do you have for us today? Well, I I thought today you might like to hear from uh, the the famous economist Goldman, David P. Goldman, uh, and what he says that might be instructive for us for how our culture looks at history, and because of that, instructive for what our Lord gives us to know of history, which is important because obviously Jesus. God the Son entered history, became incarnate, and he works toward you and me uh, in history, in other words, in our own lives. So to have, a, to have a healthy view of what history is, what it means to be in the timeline of history, is actually to be able to understand how Jesus is also distributing these gifts. It's interesting so I- that... That is a. That's yeah. interesting that it's going to be an economist who's taking a look at history. There's, I mean, there's a whole bunch of people who are studying the phenomenon of history, but... Well, how, how does an economist? How does a question connect with an economist? Well, it's going to it's going to connect with in economics in general because uh, uh, as you read economists, one of the first questions to ask is, you know, what doctrine of man or what doctrine of natural law does an economist have? And depending on what it is, he may have a healthy view of what family is and how uh, men and women make contracts with each other, how an economy is flourishing and healthy for people, or he may have a view that uh, history is just a matter of movements of power, and then you're going to end up with a completely different system of economics. That's inter- that's um, interesting. You and I have talked about that before, that that is one of the chief questions that we need to ask of any teacher or that we're listening to, a, a, so a politician or even a um, uh, what an editorial writer or something yeah. like this is what is the what is the doctrine of man that they're trying to bring forth right because if they have a doctrine of man that that a person a man or a woman is a true person with a name and they have worth simply by being a human that's been created by god then that's going to bring one way of looking at life on the other hand if you have someone who thinks that a human has worth to the extent that he is effective or that he is profitable to the collective, well, then everything of worth goes to the collective, and the person is actually expendable. And they may not put it in those terms, but you end up with with two different 
two, two completely different philosophies of how to look at the human person. And that's going to affect the politics and everything else. That's fun. Ed, would you, so, just to kind of just yeah. put a circle on those two, the two kind of, the two chief competing anthropologies that we're going to be hearing about in, in, the, in the conversation are going to be those two uh, anthropologies, that a person has worth by virtue of their being a person, having a name and so forth, versus the person has worth by their contribution to the whatever to the collective to the society right. to uh, huh. well that yes and and i think we can say i mean so far we've used modern terms for that maybe it, just in our few minutes here but uh, i think if we go back and we read the text of the lord's word the text of the old testament and we see what he says about a man and, and again we're using man as as a human man or woman but what he says about a man and the worth of a man's name, how you should not slander anyone's name, etc., versus the way that the the Baal worshippers look at a human person, where they look at the human person as having worth to the extent that he's swallowed into the the Baal king, who has all the power. So it's a more of a, it's a collective view. So this is not a modern distinction. It may be modern distinction by the language we put on it. But I think we can say that it's as soon as we brought sin into this creation, that means that from now on we're going to have one view of the human as being created by the Lord, and then we're going to be, in our sinful flesh, tempted to look instead at a view that our worth comes by what we can create as our worth in this collective of of other, you know, of um whether the king, whether the collective is the modern collectivism or the the uh, Baal king or Lamech in, in uh, the early chapters of Genesis or whatever. Now, so so we got to take a half step back to get to Goldman. You want to introduce him and, yes. and get us into a paragraph of his stuff? Sure. So yeah. Um, so so the the author is um, Dave, David P. Goldman. He wrote a book that's very interesting, How Civilizations Die. And so in the book, it's looking somewhat at the Western civilizations, but it is also bringing the Islamic world into the analysis. And that um, though we think of the Islamic world as on the increase, if you just go by the fertility rates, that world is in the same trouble that the Western world is at. And so then you can start asking when people are living in fear because they see their civilization dying, whether it's the West, as in Europe, or whether it's Islam, that may be helpful in explaining why Islam, at all the edges of their, of their, um, uh, of their countries, of the, of the realm of Islam, as they think of it, at all the edges, it's going to be bloody because they're living in fear. And so they strike out. All right. But what Goldman writes... Um, is, I'll, I'll just give you two sentences here. He says, if we do not see ourselves as continuing the lives of those who preceded us, nor preparing the lives of those who will follow us, then we are defined by our physical existence and nothing more. In that case, we will seek to maximize our pleasure. Entire peoples may live only for pleasure, numbing themselves to this to the prospect of their own obliteration so when you look at what he's saying there and and i think after after um 
after you comment on it or whatever, then I, I think that it'd be worth taking a look at two verses in Amos, where Amos is talking about, the prophet Amos is talking about this same thing. But what he's saying is, if I'm standing here in my life in 2018, and I don't have a sense that I'm not here except for those who have preceded me, and I receive gifts from them. Now, some of the gifts may be poison. If if they were gifts given for evil and, and all of that. In other words, if if I'm reading, if I'm reading, um, well, whatever, you know, the propaganda of of um, Nazi Germany, then obviously what I'm receiving from them is, is poison. But on the other hand, I'm receiving gifts that are not poison, that that are that, that are the hard, diligent work of generations who have preceded me, and I get to see myself as recipient of that. I'm not here on my own. But I also get to see that those who follow me, I am connected to them. And so what I do with my life is actually serving those who follow me, not just directly my family lineage. But if I'm, for instance, if I'm building roads, if I'm a, if I'm a house builder, I'm building housing or I'm building roads to serve the generation or the three generations after me. But even more than that, it's helping other people for those three generations by getting good transportation to also do their vocations. I, Which, now, yeah. So, so this is now, it is Goldman. Um, he said this sounds like a Jewish name. Is it? Do you know the the? He, he grew up. He, yeah, he grew up in America as a very secular Jew, not a not a practicing. Um, and then he went to, I don't remember his education, but he got his, his Ph.D. studies, his serious studies, were at the uh, London School of Economics. Okay. And then he worked in Asia some, if I remember right, in some markets or something. And I don't know. I think now he's back working um, at banks in, in uh, Europe or something like that. But, but he's a known, you know, he's a known name in economics. Yeah, yeah. This is, a, so, okay, so I, I, I will, man, there are so much, your, those two sentences are, are loaded. I mean, there's, there's four or five mm-hmm. premises there and, and, th- and maybe even double the conclusions. But, so the, the basic idea, so if, so if we don't know where, in some ways, if we don't know our, if we don't know where we came from, and we don't know where we're going. If there's not a source and a goal, if there's not, if there's not something beyond us in the past and in the future, if if we right. are the if we if our own horizons are all that exists, then the result is a is is a hedonistic epicureanism. That, that that's your only yeah. that's your only option. Correct. Or to put it in in the terms that. Um an economist such as Goldman might use it. It would be it, the result is then that I'm a materialist, mm-hmm. or even worse, a dialectical materialist. But in other words, I don't understand my origins. I don't understand my completion. Um, so I'm just here as I am, totally determined by events around me. And so I better just go ahead and do the best I can and make sure make sure I thrive and have as much fun as I can because I don't see myself as receiving gifts before from those before me. And I do not see myself and what it's a despairing thing, but I do not see myself as being any benefit at all to those who come three or four generations after me. Did you, did, did we ever talk about 
Luther's critique of of Aristotle's uh, anthropology. Have we? Did we talk about that? Even I don't on, maybe think on the, so. So Luther wrote these theses on man, on humanity, and in which he takes on Aristotle's definition of humanity, which is that man is a rational being and mm-hmm. a, a rational animal. And Luther says the problem with Aristotle is he doesn't know where man came from and he doesn't know where man is going. Right. So, and and so the result of Aristotle would be um, an anthropology of of Epicurus, this sort of the, the, a materialistic anthropology, because you don't have any, you don't have the image of God in which yeah. we are created, and you don't have the resurrection to which we're headed. But what's what's fascinating is that is that what. Um, what, the the critique that Luther can bring is much more precise than what Gold, Goldman can bring because I would imagine that w- what Goldman will see as a source could be even just a secular thing. You your parents and your culture y- that you exist in history, and that and that there is a history that comes after you. It's it's much more of an abstraction than what Luther would want to say, but still the result is the same. If you don't have a if you don't have any source, any goal, or any place where things are headed, any future that exists without you. Then, then all you can do is maximize your own whatever it is that you mm-hmm. see as good. Right, and and if someone wants to read Goldman, I don't think they're going to be able to chase that down anymore. He doesn't. I don't think he reveals himself unless I sort of missed it. But he he doesn't reveal himself in it. I think what he does is he steps back uh, one layer away and he's analyzing a culture or a civilization for whether or not. They have a sense. So, so he's looking at the Western civilization that used to have more of a sense of a history line that would be understood in what's sometimes called what Judeo-Christianity. But in other words, a creator, um, a redeemer, and a last day of, of redemption. So he's looking at these cultures, or he's analyzing cultures then that have lost that in the despair or the lack of hope that they go into. So, yeah, I mean, that that's where we end up. And I think that's, when, when we look at Aristotle, that is the problem. That's the materialism that if we're to say, if we're to say what is it to be human, the best we can do when looking at it that way is to say, well, a human is an animal, which is, in that way, is true. It's a biological animal, I guess. And it's an animal then that is defined as being human as opposed to the other animals. And then we have to start looking for reasons. And we'll say, well, because it has the ability of language and in language then the ability to keep and store knowledge and transfer knowledge. And all of that's true. We don't find animals that can do that. We find animals that can communicate, but it's communicating in what? Real time of a threat or whatever, but we don't find animals that can communicate and come up with a plan in their community of how they're going to defeat the grizzly bears next year or something like that. Um, So, so we can't, we can say things that are true about humans, but that's where Luther is, I think, so discerning where he actually says that what it means to be human is to be justified by God. Right. So he's not looking at the, he's not looking at me and determining that well my my IQ does seem to be higher than a dachshund so I guess we can put me in a different class than a dachshund, but rather Luther's looking at me and saying, there's a word the Lord spoke about you, 
you are justified. Yes. You are a new Adam. How about so. that? So that the so it's not just that we can speak words and we have language that words come from us, but that there are words from God about us and that that right. we we are created in the image of God. That God is the one who gives us and preserves our name, and that gives us what we would refer to now as human dignity or something like that this is this is great now you're going to take us to amos but let's take a break first let's go to the break uh, now and then come back and and see how amos saw what what goldman saw uh three thousand years ago and maybe even with a bit more clarity uh so we'll see that there as well i'm pastor brian wolfmuller uh, pastor of hope lutheran church in aurora colorado you're listening to me talk with pastor warren graff of grace lutheran church in albuquerque new mexico and this is cross defense we'll be right back stay tuned I'm Gary Duncan, the executive director of KFUO Radio. We still have some seats available for you to attend our Focus on Christ Planning for Our Future event on Saturday, October 6th. The deadline for registration is this Friday, September 28th. As a listener and supporter of KFUO, you are very important to us, and it would be a blessing for us to get your input and ideas as we plan for the future of KFUO. Again, this event is Saturday, October 6th at 10 a.m. Call me for additional information and to register. Call 314-996-1511, 314-996-1511, or email me at gduncan at kfuo.org. That's gduncan at kfuo.org. Remember to register by this Friday, September 28th for this free, fun, and informative time together. Snacks and lunch and door prizes and a time to fellowship. Join us, share your opinion as we focus on Christ and plan for our future. Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. After 66 days at sea, the Mayflower arrived with 102 passengers at Cape Cod, Massachusetts on November 9, 1620. They had intended to land in Virginia, but poor weather and poor navigation led them slightly off course. These first pilgrims were a mix of business traders and those escaping the jurisdiction of the Church of England. They may have brought with them the Geneva Bible, the Bible popular among English Protestants. Many pilgrims were from a sect known as separatists. Their desire was to form independent congregations strictly following their interpretation of the Bible. Their action was prompted by 2 Corinthians 6, 16-18 in the Geneva Bible translation, including verse 17, Wherefore, come out from among them and separate yourselves. Engage with a book that shapes history. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, Pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. More stuff that we've got going on is on the website, www.wolfmuller.co, including a trip to Spain to visit our Lutheran Church Missouri Synod missionaries over there next summer. You can find that at the website, wolfmuller.co. I've got uh, Pastor Warren Graff on the line, and he has brought to our attention this uh, a couple of lines from David P. Goldman, an economist, who says, if we don't know that there was generations before us and that there are generations after us if the the boundaries of our existence are our own self then the only option we have is this materialistic 
life of maximizing pleasure. Uh, did I get that right as a summary? Uh, I think so. Yeah. And and, um, uh, and Pastor Graf, you yeah, well, you wanted to point us to Amos, but something else you got? What, yeah. Well, no, with, with what you just said. So, and that's where we can, as as we look at Amos. But before we do, what we can be looking for then, when we see that we may be in a culture or that we are in a culture, if that's our discernment, that does not have a healthy view of receiving gifts from generations before us and does not have a healthy view of giving gifts to generations following us, then what we're looking at is the word hope. That is what is lost. That's what we've impoverished ourselves of. Because how can we have hope that have a hope that goes beyond the span of our years? Hope is, is actually a word that is saying there is something that goes beyond you. Now, then we can talk about what the hope is, and of course that's where we can look at um, words in Scripture of the hope we have in Christ Jesus. But we, we ha- we're in a culture we might want to uh, surmise that is living with a robbery of hope. Oh. And, and then we can start looking at things like why would our culture be doing such odd things? Such as abortion or euthanasia, or, or things that are just, that, that are encased in death, and you go, well, that might be predictable if you're talking of a people with no hope. Oh. But let, let me go to Amos. Yes, oh, um, oh, man, so, I don't want to. I, I almost want to bite into that a little bit more. Well, let, well, okay, let's add Amos to the plate, and then we'll <laughs> and then we'll and then we'll start cutting it up. Good. So, yeah, now remembering uh, what Goldman said is if we do not see ourselves as continuing the lives of those who preceded us nor preparing the lives of those who will follow us, then we are defined by our physical existence and nothing more. In that case, we will only seek to maximize our pleasure. Okay, here's what Amos writes. So Amos is writing of the curses against these nations surrounding Jerusalem. Um. And so we won't get into all that of, of how Amos is moving in on bringing the law to Jerusalem. But what Amos writes, and this would be chapter Amos chapter 1, verse 13, it says, uh, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not provoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead. Now, let me go to another verse. Just keep in mind, they've ripped open pregnant women and, and, and what that means for generations. Then in a few verses later, chapter 2, first verse, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So, what, what Amos is showing there, among, among other things, but what he is showing there is that these, these, people, these peoples, these kingdoms receiving the curses, when they have ripped open pregnant women, that is to obliterate the future generation. That is a statement, if, if I go and I'm doing that, if I'm aborting the next generation, that is my statement that there is nothing for me to be concerned about following me. Everything belongs to me right here, right now. But then he go, Amos goes about uh, the punishment will not be revoked because Moab burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Well, the king is the stand-in for the people. To burn to lime the bones 
is to say that I'm obliterating that king. And of course, he comes into lineage. I'm obliterating his lineage so that I will recognize nothing in the generation before. So again, that leaves me standing here on my own. So now my life is purely an act of power for my life in my particular span of life. But then notice also Amos's words. It's not just that they took the grave of the king and desecrated it, but they burned it to lime. And lime is whitewash. Lime is how you make whitewash, which is what you put over a house to hide all the blemishes or to to make it look pretty even though I mean, you can think of Jesus being about whitewashed tombs and things like that. So they, it's not just that they burned his bones to ashes, but rather they burned his bones to lime so that the history before us, we will whitewash it. We will right. obliterate it. Huh. So, yeah, so Amos places us that this sin that receives curse from God um, is this sin of not of thinking that we're standing here on our own and we can exercise power over those around us without any regard for for those before or after. And and just one, if you think about a commandment such as you shall not murder and, and think of the depth that that brings to that, you and I know that if I go and I murder my neighbor, I have sinned against God. The commandment says so. But what I... What I get to see here is I've sinned against God, not just because I've taken my neighbor's life, but in that, I have made a statement to God that there would be no gifts to come from this neighbor. I have said to his family, his family around him right now, his family and generations before him, his family that follows him, I have said to them, I obliterate him and his memory. So I've actually offended God who created him and the generations before him and the generations after. So here we have the we have the tombs of the king, the bones of the king, which is our history. We have the the children mm-hmm. in the womb, which is our future. And we stand here and we say, no, I want none of it. I want none of the right. history. I'm going to take the history. I'm going to whitewash the history. I'm going to give myself my own history. I'm going to recreate mm-hmm. it according to my own image, and I'm going to, and I don't want a future either. I, I want, I do want, I do not want any obligation to the future. I don't want any thought of the future. Everything I'm going to simply curve in onto myself, uh, in my own s- sort of uh, what attempts to 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 recreate myself or or what 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 motivates these things? Is it because the well, history has a claim on us or? What, what's behind well, I this? wouldn't even put it, or, or rather, I want to make sure that what I do is purely attributable to my will to power. Huh. That's the, the, sinful, the sinful nature. And so I don't want to say that the, that the gifts I have in life, the strengths I have, um, not just the technology around me, though it includes that, but also the wisdom, the discernment handed down through the ages, I do not want to say in my sinful flesh, I do not want to say this is all to me as a gift. Rather, I want to say that whatever wisdom I have, whatever technology I have, it's, it's because I have a will to power and I will exercise it in the way I need to, to accomplish what I need to. 
but without regard to those who have been giving me gifts throughout the generations. It's, it seems like this, so to bring the devil and into this whole thing, um, because this the devil is going to be encouraging this, is going to be pressing us towards this, is going to be constantly tempting us towards this, because he, so that the devil can see that this, that this will to, it has the illusion of freedom, where, where it, mm-hmm. it is this, it's, it's the most invisible of all prisons, right? It's the... If, if I'm now crafting my own self, I'm existing on my own strength or whatever it is, I think that I'm finally free when I am at I am at this point the most dead and the most enslaved that a human being could possibly be. Yes, and, and I think that that's the word that the demons used with Jesus when they said, don't cast us out into the abyss. What I have done when I've cut myself off from those who have given gifts in, in the in history in the past, and for those from whom, um, well, for those uh, that I could be giving gifts to in the future, when I've cut myself off and I'm standing here on my own, I have created myself as this person standing alone, and that is the abyss. Mm. The abyss is to be connected to to no life around you, and so that's how bad the sinful. The sinful nature is that's that's how bad the affliction of the demons is to finally get me to create my own abyss in my sinful life oh man so so give us the alternative as we sort of unfortunately we got to wind down already it yes. seems like we're just winding up but so so give us the alternative from the scriptures how would um how how uh, yeah, would they point me, us to where we came from that because everything we're talking about at least i would uh if it's left on its own is quite depressing um and i think it should be that that is the effect of, of a sinful way of looking at history. So now let me reintroduce the word hope, because hope is the promise given to Adam and Eve. That's history, uh, where they looked they looked knowing that life was awaiting them. And hope then is you and me looking and saying, I don't understand things around me. I see death. I see jeopardy. I see fear around me. Yet. I live in hope. I know there at the end of the day there is nothing but life. So to to let um to let the apostle Peter speak for a couple of verses here if I can. Yeah, absolutely. From 1 Peter, yeah, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached 
the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. So th- there we see Peter showing, first of all, what Amos is about. Amos was proclaiming this despair of getting rid of your history and getting rid of your future. But Amos did it toward proclaiming the salvation. And, and then when you go later in the book of Amos, it talks about Jerusalem being uh, forgiven and um, given life. So the salvation is theirs. But, but what Amos is showing us is that Amos knows the life that you and I live as well as you and I do. Uh, not the particulars, obviously, back when he was prophesying, but he knows this despair we live in of being cut off. And when, if we were to explain to Amos this culture that you and I live in of, of abortion, of uh, euthanasia, of whitewashing history, and, and we, would, we would say you know, to Amos, why does a culture lose the will to live? I think Amos could tell us, well, it loses the will to live because it cut itself off from the gifts the Lord gave in prior history, including its origin of creation, and including what comes in history, the incarnation of your Savior. It so, seems to me like there's a, so that to, to, to pull Goldman back in, that, that there is a human before and a human after. That would be our parents and grandparents, our children and grandchildren. But Peter says you, mm-hmm. you have something better. You, you were born when Jesus was raised from the dead. And yes. and because of that, your future is the resurre- the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. That we have something even yes. more profound. And that's what the cross does to this history. The cross enters history. The Son of God enters history, gives himself to die on the cross. And when he did that, he redeemed with his blood the history that preceded him and the history that is going to come after him. <laughs> so that... Those people, Adam and Eve, uh, Abel, uh, um, Abraham, all the rest, Noah, they live in hope because there is a redemption from that cross that makes their lives justified before God. You and I live in hope now because that blood of the cross has redeemed our history, your history and mine, so that now I don't need to establish myself by my will to power, by overcoming obstacles and people around me. But rather, I can see my life giving gifts from those who proceed, giving gifts to those who come after. And even when I receive suffering, I can see, yes, but this is the life redeemed by Christ Jesus. This is a justified life. Jesus came not with the will to power, but with the will to suffer with the will to right. to be neglected, to, to, to die on the cross, to, with the will to save, the will to redeem, to purchase us with his blood. Pastor Graf, this is fantastic. Thank you so much for um, for bringing this to our attention. If people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way? Are you, you're on Facebook, and you've got the website, Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico there. Right. So Facebook, so, the website, yep. That's the way to do it. And I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, your host on Cross Defense every Monday afternoon. I thank you for sticking with us for the hour. Uh, if you if you want to listen to past episodes, these are all archived on the on the KFUO uh, website. You could subscribe to the podcast, and that it'll download automatically. You can listen every week, and we appreciate you being here uh, for this to to consider the Lord's Word and the and the great joy that it brings to us, the great comfort that we have in the gospel, the wisdom that we have in the Lord's teaching. Uh, 
Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. For more theology, remember to visit the KFUO website or wolfmuller.co, and we will look forward to joining you again next week uh, here, right here on Cross Defense. Thanks. God's peace be with you. Listening to Cross Defense, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314 996 1518, or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at KFUO.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO.